Well, that has to be one of the best songs that has been written in our modern time. Wouldn't you agree? I love that uh, thought of heaven and Christ, our intercessor. What a great uh, encouragement that is to our souls. Well, we've already uh, experienced a lot this morning, but uh, now we've got the the exposition of God's Word, and so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at just um, three verses this morning, and some of you may remember me preaching on this text a couple of years ago, and I uh, preached this text um, several times when I was in South Africa, and I was just reminded about how much I love this passage, Um, but more importantly, uh, I thought this would serve as a uh, kind of a teaser, if you will, a a trailer um, to uh, make you want to come for more on Wednesday nights um, in this series that we're going to be starting this Wednesday called Come and Die, uh, Answering Christ's Call to Follow Him. And so I'm hoping and praying that uh, us going back through this familiar text this morning will kind of salt our oats a little bit, if you you know that expression, right, and um, make you thirsty to want to be here on Wednesday and to be a part of that six-week series that we're going to be doing on Wednesday nights uh, this summer. And so, again, a familiar text. Let me read it for you, and I'll pray, and uh, we'll talk about it. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Father, we're thankful for your holy word. Um, We believe that uh, your spirit inspired Matthew to write down exactly what he said here from the life and ministry of Jesus. And Lord, this is a radical text that should impact us radically. And so would your spirit help us to understand this passage clearly, what exactly did Jesus mean by what he said here, and uh, Lord, how that should impact our lives, how it should affect our lives, how it should cause us to live as a result of understanding this text. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, back in the 1970s, and this is going to date me and some of you, uh, you may remember how Campus Crusade for Christ, a very well-known ministry now simply known as Crew, but uh, back in nineteen, uh, back in the nineteen seventies, uh, they launched an evangelistic campaign called "I Found It." Anybody remember that? The "I Found It" campaign. Okay, yeah, it's all of all us old people up here are remembering that stuff, right? But it was interesting because they emblazoned that simple slogan, "I Found It." on flyers and bumper stickers and pins and t-shirts and and encouraged Christians to display them, to wear them in hopes that it would pique people's interest. And if and when they ask what they had found, they would have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. They would get to tell them about Jesus. Well, these two parables, which are only found here in Matthew's gospel, are what happens to someone who finds Christ. Some people find Christ even though they they aren't looking for him, while others find him after years of searching. Some of you got saved and you didn't even know you needed to be saved. While others of you knew there was something missing in your life and were on some quest for true meaning and fulfillment in life, which you eventually discovered in the person and work of Jesus. Other than that one difference... Between these two parables, a man stumbling upon a treasure and a merchant searching for a pearl, they both have the same exact meaning. Now, we don't know for sure uh, whether Jesus told these parables in sequence like they're here 
in Matthew's gospel, or if Matthew simply arranged them back to back to serve the purpose of his gospel. But in any case, they form a pair, obviously, and they both make the same basic point. You say, what is the point of these short side-by-side parables? Well, these two parables are a part of a series of parables that Jesus told to describe the kingdom of heaven. Notice back in verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Verse 31, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. Verse 33, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And then jumping past our parables, verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And then the conclusion, verse 51, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. So Jesus obviously wanted his followers to understand what his kingdom was like. And so he compared it to examples or experiences from their everyday lives, whether it was planting seed or um, baking bread or fishing. We know that according to Mark's gospel, the first thing that came out of Jesus's mouth when he started his ministry, Mark chapter 1 verse 15, he said this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so we're familiar with these phrases, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, They're synonymous terms. They mean the same thing. And Jesus used these terms to summarize God's glorious plan to save sinners through his life, his death, and his resurrection, and make them citizens of his kingdom who would reign with him for all eternity in heaven. And at his first coming, Jesus offered himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah, who had come to set up his literal earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. But as you know, as part of God's sovereign purposes, the Jews rejected Christ's rule over them, and they crucified him. And in spite of that, God raised Jesus from the dead and restored him to a place of honor at his right hand in heaven, where he now reigns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will return someday to set up his kingdom here on this earth. And in the meantime, Jesus is establishing his spiritual kingdom in the hearts and lives of those who acknowledge him as the King of kings and Lord of lords and are willing to repent of their sin and believe in him and follow and obey him as their Lord and Savior. And so there's nothing mysterious or challenging when it comes to understanding what that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, means. However, there is a huge disagreement among Bible scholars regarding who the man and the merchant in these parables represent and what the treasure and the pearl symbolize. Unlike the parable of the soils and the parable of the the tares, which Jesus told uh, at the beginning of this chapter, uh, he never provided an explanation of this parable. And so we're left to interpret it on our own with the help of the Holy Spirit and what's called hermeneutics. So we've got illumination, right? The illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit and the basic principles of interpretation. In other words, how do you interpret the scripture? Well, there there are basically two ways that this parable can be interpreted, either literally or allegorically. Now, the allegorical method of interpretation Uh, reads meaning into every detail of a parable and finds different levels of meaning. And and it tends to stretch a parable far beyond its original purpose. And the parable can end up meaning virtually anything that the the reader or the commentator wants it to mean. As one of my uh, seminary professors said, that some commentators make parables stand up and walk on all fours. 
um, and, and do things and, and say things that Jesus never intended them to. And so having said all that, some believe that the man and the merchant in this parable represent Christ and the buried treasure is symbolic of Israel, the Jewish remnant, and the pearl of great value is the church or the Gentile remnant. In other words, what they teach is that Christ gladly sold all that he had. He willingly gave up his life to purchase us for himself, a prized possession made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, just so you know, I'm not making this up. Let me read for you a quote from one of my favorite commentators that I turn to every week. And I was honestly stunned when I turned to him for help on this passage and read this. Quote, the merchant is the Lord Jesus. The pearl of great price is the church. At Calvary, he sold all that he had to buy this pearl. Just as a pearl is formed inside an oyster through suffering caused by irritation, so the church was formed through the piercing and wounding of the body of the Savior. Now you could read that and go, ooh, that's really interesting, and that sounds really spiritual, and wow, the oyster and the suffering and the irritation, yeah, I understand that, and, and, and man, that'll preach. But that's not what Jesus was saying here. I think that's saying far more than Jesus wanted to communicate through these two parables. Now, you say, well, how do they come to that conclusion? Well, I think simply they go back to the context of verse 38 where it says, and the field is the world. So in another parable, uh, Jesus was telling, he actually explained that the field is the world. So they assume that, well, the field in this passage is the world. Um, there's also a couple Old Testament passages like Exodus 19.5, Psalm 135, verse 4, where Israel is likened to God's special treasure. But I think the, the, the main motive for this allegorical interpretation surely is to safeguard the doctrine of salvation, specifically that a person is saved by grace through faith alone. And so it's assumed that if you interpret these parables literally, it appears that people are entering the kingdom or getting saved through their own sacrifice and effort, which is heresy. And some who choose to interpret these two parables allegorically will argue that a literal interpretation breaks down at every point, that salvation is a free gift. It's not for sale. We, we, don't, we don't find Christ. He finds us. We have nothing to offer Christ in and of ourselves, and, and, and a converted sinner would never hide Christ after finding him, would, would never bury Christ in the ground. doesn't make any sense. Well, you could also argue that the allegorical interpretation breaks down at every point, too. And I appreciate uh, what John MacArthur has written in a great book, a classic book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And if, there's a book, if that's a book you've not read yet, I would highly recommend you get a copy of that and read it. In fact, maybe that would be a good summer read uh, as we go through uh, our summer series, Come and Die. Um, it's in many ways based off of that book and what I learned when I read through that book years ago. But this is what John MacArthur writes. Christ did not stumble across Israel by accident or discover the church after a long time of searching. Furthermore, the Lord did not purchase Israel and the church because they were rare treasures worthy of great sacrifice. They were, like all sinners, useless debris until after Christ redeemed them. He did not discover inherently priceless commodities and then purchase them. Rather, he bought what was utterly worthless and made it precious. And so what happens when we simply apply a literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation to this parable? In other words, what is the, the most normal, natural way to understand what Jesus was saying here? How would these two parables have been most obviously understood by the disciples who first heard them? And also, we need to take into account the analogy of Scripture. Um, another, that's just a fancy word for cross-referencing. Um, 
It's not like this is the only text we have to go by. And whenever we come across a verse or passage in, in Scripture where the interpretation isn't immediately clear, we need to compare it to other verses in the Bible which are clearer. One of the basic principles of interpretation or hermeneutics, Bible study methods. And in this case, uh, we need to compare it to those verses and passages, particularly that record what Jesus said himself during his life and ministry. And so I believe that based on what the rest of Scripture teaches, that the man and the merchant in this parable represent us and the buried treasure and the pearl symbolize Christ. In other words, both of these parables picture how a person should respond when they discover the amazing offer of salvation in Christ. That the man and the merchant found Christ. And when someone finds Jesus Christ and truly recognizes the surpassing value of knowing Christ, they gladly give up their sin and willingly surrender everything and sacrifice anything to have a relationship with him. I think this is the simplest interpretation that makes the most sense. And again, it's just consistent with everything else the Bible teaches, especially what Jesus taught about being a Christian. This, these two parables... Describe the experience of every true Christian. And you may have said this, but I've heard new converts often say, hey, I found Christ. Or they're sharing their testimony, and I was living my life, and I found Christ, right? That's a, that's a phrase we, we often share or we hear. Whether you, are, whether you were passionately searching for Christ or whether you were cluelessly wandering through life, you suddenly met Christ, and you were struck by the matchless value of the salvation that he offers. And so what did you do? You gladly gave up your life of sin and you completely devoted yourself to follow and obey him as your Lord and Savior. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so really these two parables are simply two examples that Jesus gave of people who recognized how valuable he is and as a result, joyfully surrendered everything to gain him. And so let's look at these two examples quickly this morning. Number one is the buried box. The buried box, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So Jesus tells a story here of a man who finds a treasure hidden in the field. We have no way of knowing who put it there or how long it had been there. But what we do know is that in ancient Palestine, people would often hide their treasure in fields rather than their house uh, to keep it safe from thieves and marauding armies. There was no safes in those days, no banks, no safe deposit, uh, safety deposit boxes, no investment firms. And so uh, the field was their best option. But if someone buried their valuables somewhere in a field and they died during a war, for example, or they died of natural causes, they would carry that secret with them to the grave. No one would ever know about the hidden treasure. And so this man may have been a hired hand or maybe he was leasing the land and he was probably plowing the field or digging a hole or planting some seed when his tool hit something hard that didn't sound like a rock. And so he dug it up and he was shocked to find this valuable treasure. And he immediately thought to himself, man, if I, if I own this field, then this treasure would belong to me. And so he quickly covers it back up and he goes off and he buys the field. Now he knew that the present owner hadn't buried the treasure, nor did he know about it, or he would have never sold him the field. Or at least he would have removed the treasure before selling it to him, right? We don't know all the details of ownership laws in Jesus' day, so we shouldn't immediately call this guy's integrity into question. That's not what this parable isn't, isn't about. It's not about ethics. It's about Christ's value. 
But even so, he did show integrity, in my opinion, because he could have just grabbed the treasure and took off or pillaged just enough to pay for the field. But he didn't do that. He went and paid full price, if you will, for the field. Why? This man knew that this acquisition would cost him everything, everything that he owned. But in his mind, it was totally worth it. He didn't give it a second thought. He went out and sold everything that he owned to buy that field with that treasure because he knew that what he would give away didn't even begin to compare with what he was going to get. And so he did it with great joy. I love that word. You might want to underline that or circle that or bracket it in verse 44. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Listen, typically selling everything you own or draining your entire savings account or retirement fund is not something you do with joy. In fact, it's typically sad and even scary. But this guy was happy about it. I imagine his family and friends may have thought he was crazy, that he was making a risky move, that this was a foolish decision. I mean, any wise investor knows you always diversify. He was putting all his eggs in, in one basket here in a big way. But this guy, he just, he just laid it all on the line. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew he would have been foolish not to do it. That there was no risk at all involved in this decision. It was the ultimate investment. There was no diversification needed here. Why? Because he was convinced he was getting the deal of a lifetime. This was a no-brainer decision. And so that's the buried box. Now let's look at the precious pearl. The precious pearl, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So here's a guy who bought and sold goods for a living. And in his travels, he comes across a pearl unlike anything he'd ever seen before. And in those days, pearls were extremely desired and valued. Um, in, if you remember in Matthew 7, verse 6, um, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, the women would adorn themselves with pearls. And so pearls were in high demand and merchants had to go all the way to the Red Sea uh, in Egypt, even as far as the, uh, the Persian Gulf and, and some even as far as India, to find pearls. And so the farther you traveled, the finer the pearls were that you could find. And again, we don't know how far or how long this man had to travel, but we do know that this was the finest pearl that he had ever laid his eyes on. And he knew that a rare, flawless pearl like this comes along only once in a lifetime. And so he considered this a chance of a lifetime. He wouldn't be happy until this, this pearl of unequaled, unrivaled beauty was his. So this was a now or never proposition. And he showed the same kind of zeal, the same kind of dedication and willingness to sell everything in order to acquire the pearl. So he considered his assets. He, he did the math. And he decided to sell everything he owned to buy this one pearl beyond compare. And while it doesn't say it, as specifically as it says in the first parable, he did this joyfully. He, he also knew he was getting the deal of a lifetime. Again, this was a no-brainer decision. But it wasn't without a cost. Years ago, I came across a dialogue an imaginary dialogue written about the transaction between the seller and the buyer of this pearl. And uh, someone suggests that this transaction could have gone something like this. And see if you can relate to this. I want this pearl. How much is it? Well, the seller says it's expensive. Well, how much, we ask? Well, a very large amount. Well, do you think I could buy it? Oh, of course, everyone can buy it. But didn't you say it was very expensive? Yes. Well, how much is it? Everything you have. 
We make up our minds, all right, I'll buy it. We say, well, what do you have? Well, let's write it down. Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good, $10,000, what else? Well, that's all, that's all I have, nothing more. Well, I have a few dollars here in my pocket. Well, how much? We start digging around in our pocket. Well, let's see here, 30, 40, 60, 100, $120, that's fine. What else do you have? Well, nothing, that's it. Well, where do you live? Still probing. In my house. Yes, I have a house. The house too then. He writes that down. You mean I have to live in my camper? Oh, you have a camper. Well, that too becomes mine. What else? I'll have to sleep in my car? Oh, you have a car. Yeah, I've got two of them. Well, both of them become mine. Both cars. What else? Well, you already have my money and my house and my camper and my cars. What, what more do you want? Well, are you alone in this world? No, I have a wife and three children. Oh, yes, your wife and children too. What else? I have nothing left. I, I'm left all alone now. Suddenly the seller explains, oh, I almost forgot. You yourself too. Everything becomes mine. Wife, children, house, money, cars, and you too. But then he goes on. He said, now listen, I will allow you to use all these things for the time being, but don't forget that they're mine just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up because now I am the owner. I think that's a great description of what it means to be a Christian. It means giving up everything we have, everything that we are to Christ. We, along with everything else in our life, comes under his control. He becomes the owner. He becomes the master of all of it. And we, we must use all of it for his honor and his glory. Again, John MacArthur writes this. He says, this is the kind of totally committed response the Lord Jesus called forth. A desire for him at any cost, absolute surrender, a full exchange of self for the Savior. It is the only response that will open the gates of the kingdom. Seen through the eyes of this world, it is as high a price as anyone can pay, but from a kingdom perspective, it is really no sacrifice at all. How is it really no sacrifice at all? Well, when you realize the value of knowing Christ... You're willing to surrender everything and sacrifice anything, but in reality, you're not giving up anything. You're gaining everything. In fact, C.H. Spurgeon titled his sermon on these two parables, A Great Bargain. A Great Bargain. This is a great bargain. And so Christianity boils down to exchanging all that we are for all that he is. And in order for a person to be saved from sin, death and hell, this transaction or exchange must take place. So my question to you this morning is, have you made this exchange? Have you given all that you are to gain all that Christ is? I mean, it's a truly unbelievable exchange. And Jesus is totally worth it. Now, Jesus obviously did not want to be misunderstood. I don't want to be misunderstood. So let me be crystal clear here. These parables are not teaching a works-based salvation. The Bible unmistakably teaches that salvation is a free gift from God that doesn't cost anything. You can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't work for it. Romans 6.23 says the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. So how can you say there is a cost involved with salvation? Jesus paid the price for our salvation in full, once and for all when he died on the cross. 
Acts 20, 28, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, we have been bought with a price. So to say there's a price to pay or a cost sounds like heresy. Well, I agree, all that's true. Yet it was Christ himself who said there's a cost to Christianity. Turn over to Luke chapter 14 for a second. Luke chapter 14, and this is one of the texts that we'll be looking at in depth this summer. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them. Now just so you understand the context, Jesus was getting, uh, he, had, he had set his face towards Jerusalem. He had told his disciples that uh, he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to be arrested. He was going to be tried. He was going to be crucified. But then he was going to rise again. Somehow they missed it. Um, the crowds definitely missed it. All they had in their minds was, hey, here's the Messiah and we're heading to Jerusalem and he's about to, set up, he's about to overthrow the Roman government and he's going to set up his kingdom and we want to be a part of that deal. We want to be a part of that party. And so this parade, if you will, was headed towards Jerusalem. And the closer they got to Jerusalem, the bigger the parade got. And the more people started attaching themselves to Christ. And he realized that a lot of people in that crowd were not truly following Christ for the right reasons. And so this was what you could consider one of Jesus's classic de-invitations where he, rather than inviting people to come follow him, he, he drove people away from following him. And so listen to what he said. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the what? The cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, just so you know, the word disciple, which he mentions three times, you cannot be my disciple, you cannot be my disciple, you cannot be my disciple. Um, before Christians were called Christians, they were called what? Disciples. And so essentially saying, you can't be a Christian, you can't be a follower of me, don't, don't claim to be a Christian unless you're willing to do these things that I'm laying out for you, that, that you count, ultimately you count the cost. So he's challenging everyone, if you want to be a Christian, you want to be a follower of me, you need to carefully consider the cost. Not a cost to purchase salvation or to buy salvation or to earn salvation, but a cost in terms of of the level of commitment that Christ demands and requires of his followers. That's what Jesus meant by the cost. The level of commitment that he requires, that he demands from his followers. Now back in Matthew 13, we know these two characters in these two parables were made up by Jesus. Parables were made up stories to teach eternal lessons. So I think it might be helpful for us to look at not made up characters, but a couple real life characters mentioned in the New Testament that perfectly and powerfully illustrate the profound point of these two parables. And so the first real-life character that Jesus interacted with was the rich young ruler. 
in Matthew 19. Turn over to Matthew 19 quickly. Matthew 19, just a few pages to the right there. And again, this is a very familiar story. Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. Verse 16, and someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? In other words, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to go to heaven when I die? And Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. Which I think is a bit naive, if not a lot naive. (laughs) Um, Either he was self-righteous or didn't really understand the depth of, of these commands that God had given and Jesus expanded upon those in the Sermon on the Mount and went from, you know, um, it's a sin to commit adultery to it's a sin to even look at a woman lustfully in your heart. Um, you don't have to commit the act. In other words, he went, took those commands to a deeper level. This guy's like, hey, I've kept all these things. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now again, this wasn't, Jesus wasn't implying here that the key to being a Christian is to become poor. That that we all need to go out of here and, and sell our house and sell our cars and sell our stuff and just, you know, stand by the freeway with a little sign that says, you know, need help. And that's, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's, that's ultra, ultra spiritual thing to do. This just happened to be money, just happened to be this guy's idol. So he was pointing a finger at the one sin, the one thing that was keeping this guy from being sold out to Christ. And we know that based on verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. This guy was unwilling to sell everything or sacrifice anything. He thought to himself, no, you got to be kidding me. That's, that's ridiculous. That's a, that's a ripoff. I'm not giving away all my stuff for Christ. And so he walked away sad. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice he's still talking about the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. See, in their mind, in that day and age, uh, somebody who was wealthy um, was they, they assumed were, was, was blessed of God. And that's why they were wealthy, because they were blessed. And so surely, if this guy was as wealthy as he was, it means God's blessing was upon him, and surely he would go to heaven. He would be saved. And they're like, well, this guy couldn't be saved. Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus' answer was stellar. Um, basically, nobody. Nobody can be saved in and of themselves. With people, this is impossible. No one can save themselves, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, God makes salvation possible by his grace. It's impossible to do anything to save ourselves. I was reminded of this this morning as I was heading out of our subdivision, coming up here to church, and I saw these guys peeling off down to the next fairway in their golf carts. And uh, I thought to myself, thank you, God. There's, there's only one reason why I'm in my car going to church this morning and those guys are in their carts peeling off to the next fairway is, the, is your grace, is your mercy. I, I didn't deserve this. I didn't earn this. But you chose to save me because of your goodness and your grace and your mercy in my life. 
In other words, none of us have earned the right to be here this morning. None of us deserve to be here this morning. We are here solely by the grace of God. Amen? Well, as always, Peter was hanging on every word that Jesus said and acted as a spokesman for the rest of the disciples. And he was quick to remind Jesus what all of them had given up to follow him. Notice verse 27. And Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Essentially, what he was asking is, uh, Hey, Jesus, we did what you told this guy to do. What about us? Are, are we going to inherit eternal life? Are we going to be saved? And Jesus assured his disciples that they would be saved, that they would inherit eternal life. But he also promised them that whoever gave up loved ones and possessions would be repaid many times over during this lifetime. Notice verse 28. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. By the way, that bookends this story because it started off in verse 16. What must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus concludes, hey, disciples, guess what? You've done what I challenged that rich young ruler to do, but he was unwilling to do. And so you will be saved. You will have eternal life. And not only will you have eternal life, but you'll be rewarded abundantly, richly. And so it is true that, that Jesus Christ requires great sacrifice, but he also rewards great sacrifice. I love what Walter Chantry said in his little book, The Shadow of the Cross. He said, not one man has ever sacrificed for his Lord without being richly repaid. He said, if the cross is only contrasted with earthly pleasures lost, it may seem hard and threatening, but when the cross is weighed in the balances with the glorious treasures to be had through it, even the cross seems sweet. I love that. If you look at the cross and, and say, man, that's just harsh, man, that's just hard, that's threatening, that cross thing, well, then you, you don't understand the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Because if you do, then you know the, even the cross is sweet. So that's the rich young ruler. How about the Apostle Paul? How about the Apostle Paul? Just flip over to Philippians chapter 3 quickly. Philippians chapter 3. You know as well as I do that no one more staunchly defended salvation by grace through faith alone than Paul. We've been studying that together as we've gone through the book of Romans. And yet, Paul himself testified that in coming to Jesus Christ, he gladly surrendered everything he was and everything he had accomplished in order to gain Christ. Let me remind you of Philippians 3, verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So this was kind of Paul whipping out his spiritual business card, and these were the things that he was trusting in for his salvation before he got knocked off his horse, right, on the way to uh, Damascus, and he was blinded by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice what he says, verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, in other words, I thought all these things were going to benefit me and help me earn a right standing before God and get me into heaven someday, whatever these things were, were gained to me, those things, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 
Have you counted all things as loss to the surpassing value of knowing Christ? See, if you're unwilling to surrender everything in order to have a relationship with Christ, it's because there's something in your life that you deem more valuable than him. So what is that? What do you value more than Christ? Your family, your friends, your money, your, your possessions, your academic accomplishments, your career goals. Maybe it's fleshly desires or worldly pleasures or maybe just the freedom to live your life the way you want with no accountability and with no authority in your life. See, those who fail to recognize the surpassing value of Christ, they end up rejecting Christ. Don't be like the rich young ruler who found the treasure. He found it. He found the pearl. He was staring the pearl in the face. But he totally missed the true splendor and worth of the gospel, and so he walked away. See, all of us need to make up our minds in life. Is Christ worth it or not? Bottom line, is Christ worth it or not? And if he is, then sell out to him today. You may be visiting today. You may come to this church every Sunday. But you know you've yet to truly sell out to Christ. Give it all up for Jesus. Today could be that day where you see the surpassing value of Christ and you see nothing that I have or ever will have or achieve can compare to that. And so I'm giving it all up to follow Jesus. And those of us who have found Christ, we should live sold out to Christ every day. What does it mean to be sold out? It means that we're completely committed and devoted to someone. We're totally invested, engaged in something. We have no reserves about some decision that we're making. We're willing to go anywhere, do anything, give up everything. That's what it means to be sold out. The words of the old hymn, I surrender all are helpful at this point. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Now that's an old hymn. Some of you kids, teenagers, never heard that song before. So I got one for you, okay? So did we get that? Don't judge me, okay? This is the kind of song you listen to when, like, you're working out. But I came across it a little while ago, and I wanted to play it for you as we close this morning. And it's simply called Sold Out. So some of you older folks might need to put your fingers in your ears. But uh, I think some of you are going to be tapping your toe to this one, okay? But just the lyrics. The lyrics are what... I think make this song. Let's listen to this and I'll close this in prayer.
face You can't face this kind of grace And leave the way you came This is permanent with intent And there won't be no stopping it now I'm on a mission and it's heaven sent In a world full of followers I'll be a leader In a world full of doubters I'll be a believer I'm stepping out without a hesitation Cause my soul is like a That's a great message, isn't it? And uh, that's the way all of us should live our lives. And so if you've yet to sell out to Jesus and you want to today, come talk to me. I'd love to introduce you to Christ and help you make that decision. And uh, hopefully this will be a great reminder for all of us today. Let me pray. Father, we're grateful um, for your word and how it just challenges us every time we open it up, reminding um, us of what uh, is required of us, what you demand of us. And Lord, we know that, that this Christian life is impossible apart from your spirit living inside of us. And so, Lord, we uh, pray that you would accomplish your work in our hearts today, that we would be a group of sold-out saints uh, who live radical lives, um, proclaiming the good news of Jesus and telling others of this treasure, this pearl of great price that we found, and how... It could change their life the way it's changed ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.